I invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, we come now to the central judge, Gideon, in our list of judges. Not quite to the middle of the book of Judges, but we are to the middle of the characters who represent the judges. And before we, we turn to this text, I, I want to ask you to consider, what is the, the posture of your heart when you come into the Lord's presence for worship? Think about what is the proper pro- posture to have. And would you confess at times you come with a reluctant spirit? Uh, Is your mind so divided that you fail to grasp what's being read? And at times we we think, I've been daydreaming the last 10 minutes. I totally forgot what, what we were doing here. Maybe we're distracted by other people or simply by other concerns <clears throat> that we've, we have on our mind. It could be a number of things, but... Unfortunately, oftentimes we're filled with a disinterest instead of a reverence. And we're filled with a complacency instead of an anticipation to hear from the Lord. And in this opening section of Gideon's narrative, uh, which focuses primarily on his calling, we get an illustration of the proper posture of our hearts in worship. Sort of a picture of, of of where Gideon was and where we should be. It begins as we become accustomed to uh, this cycle that we've already seen multiple times where Israel's idolatry leads them into oppression um, and then out of desperation in their oppression, they cry out for deliverance. And so Gideon is this central judge and his narrative is the longest you would compare it to Samson, and it's, it's actually a few more verses than the narrative on Samson at the end um, of our depiction, uh, the judge narratives. Uh, so Gideon is actually the longest, and it's, he, Gideon's the only judge of all of them who is called directly into service by the angel of the Lord. The others, it either just says they, that the Lord raised them up to be judged, um, or that a prophet comes and, and calls them like Deborah, uh, who calls Barak. But here Gideon is, is visited directly by the angel of the Lord and called uh, to deliver his people. And so, so much about this narrative suggests that it's the climax of the book. It's, it's an important judge narrative to consider. And for some, it means that, they, that we ter- begin turning a corner with Gideon, where Gideon is the is so evidently weak uh, that that it's a, a picture of God using an inappropriate application you know, of Gideon's life, but I think it's a misunderstanding of, of Gideon's posture here from the very start. And maybe it's an overemphasis upon a structure of judges that views that spiritual downward spiral, as we've mentioned several times, as also impacting the judges themselves. And as I've said, I believe that downward spiral is pictured in Israel 
it's pictured out of the nation themselves who continues to turn to idols after having 40 to 80 years of rest by the judge that God brings. Um, you know, they're granted rest and then they turn to idols once again. And it says in, in the early introductions that they became worse than they were before the judge had come. Right? So, so it's obvious the text tells us that that downward spiral is affecting the people of God, but it never gives that impression of the judges themselves. And so I want to consider Gideon. I don't think he's perfect, but I want to consider him from a more positive point of view, a more positive perspective. And I think you'll, you'll see what I mean as we work our way through this. We'll be spending several weeks in um, the narrative of, of Gideon. But before we read this opening section, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this important judge, Gideon, and, and what it has to show us about our posture in worship, about the, the posture of our heart even now as we come before you, as we anticipate to hear from you. Lord, fill us with a reminder of our salvation, the joy of our salvation. Remind us as well as uh, of what we deserve, uh, what we've been rescued and saved from. I think that's an, a, a, an important and critical aspect to our salvation, to really grasping the mercy that you show us. And so, Lord, speak to us through your word and receive the glory in doing so. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Judges chapter 6. We're looking at verses 1 through 24. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no, excuse me, leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. It would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? 
But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we open here with this section, this cycle of Midianite oppression. You see there in verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. So once again, you have a, the fickle faith of the Israelites who after 40 years of rest provided through Deborah and Barak, they fall back into idolatry. Within one generation, they're falling right back into serving and worshiping the gods of their neighbors, the Midianites. And so the Lord sells them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the picture you have there is of Israel building and these hiding places themselves, dens, uh, caves, and strongholds. And what we see Gideon doing is he's, he's hiding um, to protect the crops as well as their livestock from their oppressors who come in like locusts, it says, who just devour everything in their sights. They, they come around every year. As soon as the crops are getting ready to be harvested, the Midianites with their, um, with their, with the Amalekites, you know, these others, other neighboring nations that they've made treaties with, as well as it said the uh, people from the east. They, these three 
neighbors are ganging up upon Israel as right at the harvest time and overpowering them and taking everything and leaving nothing. Right? So essentially, it's like going through a famine year after year after year. And how are you going to survive a situation like that? But it's very clear from the start that Israel brought this upon themselves. Right? It was their own idolatry that led to Midianite oppression. And so think about that. What, it, what the result was is they, they end up living in, in caves and dens and hiding, much like an animal would. Their own sin has begun to dehumanize them. And so they're, that they're no longer able to function as a normal person. And it's really the grace of God that Israel was raided by their oppressors. The fact that they're having to go through this shows that God would not permit them to remain complacent in their sin, in their idolatry. Their discomfort, in fact, increased year after year after year. Think about it. For seven years, it took them before they cried out to God, before they finally realized, you know, the fact that we've been serving Baal and Asherah these past seven years, we're not receiving more goods because of it. In fact, we're being oppressed by the very same worshipers of these gods. What are we thinking? Right? It's, almost a, it's a wake-up call. And finally, seven years in, they recognize it. Their discomfort increased to the point that they had no other option than to cry out to Yahweh. But here's the good news. They hadn't totally forgotten who they could call out to. They don't cry out to Baal. Maybe they had for seven years been crying out, or for six years, but now, finally, they begin to cry out to Yahweh, to the the Lord of the covenant. And because of their cry, we see in verse 6, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And so the Lord responds. And how does he respond? We see in verses 7 through 10, by sending a prophet. The Lord's prophet comes. And and I've mentioned this before, um, but a prophet, a typical kind of function for a prophet was to serve as a covenant lawyer. Sort of representing God to the people saying, you have broken your covenant vows. Very much like undergoing church discipline. If you were to break the vows that you've made to the church, you know, what would that look like? Well, there would be discipline in, in that case in, in, a, in a local church. Well, that's happening here at a corporate level. The prophet is coming and saying, you're guilty. You've turned to, to, the, to idols. You've begun worshiping Baal and Asherah. You've forgotten the Lord your God, and you've not obeyed my voice. That's what he says. So it's because of their disobedience that the blessings of the covenant faithfulness that they had received, which was the land, which was the produce from their crops, which was rest in that land from war, well, that's eradicated. They lose that blessing. They lose that benefit that God had granted them and that they had enjoyed for a season as, as long as up to 80 years at a time here. They've enjoyed those blessings, but they turn away somehow discontent or com- having grown complacent, having grown so comfortable 
in their relationship with God that they presume upon his grace. But notice how this scene ends. There's a clear break here between verse 10 and 11. This prophet speaking for the Lord says, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Period. Scene ends. There's a question about what's going to happen next. They cry out to the Lord and the Lord responds, but so far there's not a whole lot of hope. It's, it's, it's rebuke. Will the Lord deliver his people? And that prophet's rebuke hangs in the air as they wait. I remember in Mississippi, a, a young adult um, that I was ministering to, we were, we were out for, for lunch, and, and he was just struggling in his faith. He was questioning his faith. And, and I asked him where, you know, what the challenge was for him. What was, was it that he was questioning whether God existed? Was he questioning the, the scriptures? That was, he, was he unsure if they were truthful? And, and he said, you know, I, I don't question whether God exists. I, I, I'm convinced that God exists. And in fact, I'm convinced that it's the God of the Bible. But I do question whether he's good. And what he meant by that was whether he's good to me. His experiences had driven him to such a place of despair and heartbreak that he wondered if continuing to follow this God was ever going to result in deliverance, was ever going to result in peace and rest. And you, you just wonder, what do you say to someone in that position? How do you encourage them when they're going through that? You can certainly point back and say, well, what about these areas where God has preserved you, where God has been an encouragement to you? And maybe that would work. Um, maybe you could talk about the future that awaits, that the suffering they're going through now is temporary. Uh, but I think my ultimate encouragement was to open the Psalms. Find in the Psalms, Psalms where David feels the same where he's crying out to the Lord, feeling like he's been abandoned, feeling like he's isolated and alone. And find where David ends in those Psalms. See the hope that he concludes with and pray, cry out to the Lord for deliverance. Cry out to the Lord for peace. Cry out for, for the recognition that David received, that he would grant you that same peace. And I think that's what is happening here. There's a gap, and we don't know how long, Maybe the very next day, the angel of the Lord was sitting under the oak tree and getting ready to, to, to raise up Gideon. Maybe it was months, but for whatever that gap was, there was some uncertainty about whether God would deliver them. And the people had to continue to cry out to him during that time. I think there's some uncertainty there for anyone who is living in unrepentant sin. The Lord doesn't give that person rest. And if he did, then he would be allowing you to sit in that sin, to be content with it, to make friends with your greatest enemy. Right? And so to have a sense of assurance 
one must repent. One must be a repenting believer. To stop repenting is to start falling away. It's to start abandoning the Lord. But notice where it, the text goes. Right? It doesn't end there. Gideon is raised up. Instead of judgment, God preserves these people who are crying out in desperation. You look at verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. It's like an oak tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So the angel of the Lord is sitting under a tree. Remember, just a few chapters back, we had Deborah judging from under a tree prophesying. We said that the people were crying out probably directly to her as a representation of God. And so this angel of the Lord is sitting under a tree preparing to deliver a word from the Lord. It's the same, same theme here, same context. And Gideon, we are told, is hiding, beating out the wheat in the wine press. Think of, of what this means. The threshing floor where you would beat out the wheat would generally be at the top of a mountain. Right? You'd be exposed by your oppressors. It would be obvious where the, where the goods can be found. You'd go up to that top of the mountain, though, in order to thresh. It was, you, you took the, the wheat, you threw it up in the air, and the, and the chaff blew away. You know, the wind blew away the chaff so that what you had in the end was the, that kernel of wheat, which then you could use to ground up for flour and make your bread. So Gideon can't go up to the top of the mountain because the oppressors continue to steal the crop, the, the results of, um, of his work. So instead, he finds a wine press to hide in. So it would be like trying to fly a kite in a warehouse. You could do it. I mean, it can be done. You can get that thing up in the air, but what's going to happen? You're going to have to be running circles around that warehouse all the time in order to keep it going, in order to be productive, in order to do what you're trying to do. Well, that's what he's having to do here. He's, he's not able to use the, the benefit of the wind. He's having to separate this by hand, basically, in a wine press. So he is honestly, I think, being subversive to his oppressors here, hiding from them. He's not hiding from them because he's afraid as if he's like in the wine press looking around, you know, darting his eyes back and forth, worried that a Midianite is going to find him and, and hurt him. It doesn't say that. The text says that he was in the wine press to hide it, to hide the wheat from the Midianites. And so we shouldn't think of someone cowering down in a corner, fearful of his oppressors. He's, he's doing this in order to protect the meal that they would eat that night. Right? He's providing for his family. He's to be commended for this work, not chastised. He's, he's experienced seven years of oppression from these people who have stolen the goods of his work. You think by now he's learned something from that. Right? He should be commended. So is it ironic that the Lord then calls him a mighty man of valor? Some commentators really harp on that, and they say, look, he, the angel of the Lord comes to him and he says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And they go, that's, that's really sarcasm. That's the angel of the Lord being sarcastic because he's talking to a man who's cowering in a corner, who's hiding. 
That's ridiculous. No, in fact, we have no reason to assume that about him. No reason to think that he's cowering. And the fact that the angel of the Lord, who I've mentioned, was, is equated with the Lord as well as differenti- differentiated from him, and I believe is the second person of the Trinity, comes in a theophany presenting himself in physical form to Gideon and declares to him to be a mighty man of valor. Why should we disbelieve that? There's no reason for us to question whether that's true. And so we read there in verses 13 through 18 of this call upon him. And the Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? A legitimate question, right? If the Lord is with us, why are we going through this? Why are, being tor- why are we being tormented? And so he hesitates in his response. He wants an explanation. Why has this happened to us? And then the Lord uh, responds, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? Sorry, this is what um, Gideon is still speaking. Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us out uh, up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. All very true. He's recounting what's happened. And he's wondering whether the Lord is for him. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. Once again, reminding him of the strength he possessed. This might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do, I, do not I send you. Once again, Gideon responds, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And, and we, again, Gideon is oftentimes chastised for this. And he requests a sign, and he says, hold on, right? Please don't depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. So he's wanting assurance. He's wanting to know for sure the Lord is with us. This is a call from God upon my life. And, and who does that sound like? You know, probably, if you're thinking about people who have received a call from the Lord in the past, you're thinking about Exodus chapter 3. And there are so many parallels here with Moses and the call of Moses. In the context, they're both under severe oppression. In Exodus, under Egyptian oppression. In Judges here, it's under Midianite oppression. Moses and Gideon are hiding from their oppressors, uh, working for their father or father-in-law, who were cult priests. Both of them are cult priests. Gideon's father is a priest because Baal. In fact, probably the high priest of Baal, because as we'll see next week, they... uh, the others are, are coming to him as a leader, as, as a respected official. And same thing with, with Moses. Um, his father was a priest, in fact, in Midian at the time, back in Exodus 3. So they both are called directly by the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord visits Moses, uses the exact same phrase in Hebrew, to call Moses and to call Gideon both to deliver Israel from their oppressors. Both of them hesitate. 
Both of them oppose the call twice in their language. Right? They, they want an explanation. They want assurance. Um, they claim inadequacy. They even use similar language, please, sir, or oh, Lord. Uh, they both request a sign. They both receive signs from the Lord um, regarding his presence with them. And in fact, both of them receive a fire theophany, right, where God is presenting himself through flames, through fire, the burning bush with Moses and here with the, the burnt offering, as we'll look at next. So that fire makes both of them afraid. They both respond with fear, and they have to be assured that the Lord is with them, not against them. And they receive that assurance of God's presence and his support. So do you see what this means? That Gideon is being raised up. Remember, um, Israel had been assured that the Lord would raise up a prophet just like Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses delivers that information to the peoples. The Lord is going to raise up someone just like me. You listen to him. And if you disobey, there will be consequences. You must listen to the one who's raised up like a prophet. And in fact, throughout all the, every prophet that comes after Moses, the people of Israel are, are asking that question. Is this the prophet that Moses promised? Is this the one? Is Gideon possibly the one? As word got out of how Gideon was raised up and called, the people would have been thinking, Gideon might be the one. This might be the one who finally delivers us. And that is our hope, right? As Israel is beginning to recognize their need for deliverance, the Lord is raising up a deliverer. Their only hope, the sinner's only hope, is in a God who heals our apostasy. As we read in Hosea chapter 14, verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. What's going to turn away God's wrath is a deliverer that God himself raises up to heal our apostasy. We'll elaborate on that in a minute, but what is Gideon's response to this? Well, if you think he's questioning this calling, then what follows is, would be difficult to understand because Gideon here in verse 19, says he went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. An ephah was about 22 liters of flour. That's a tenth of what, in fact, in Exodus 16, you have a description of the um, Israelites receiving bread from heaven, receiving manna. The Lord provides for them because they, they're out in the wilderness. They have no food and they begin to grumble. So God provides them with manna and he says, you're to collect an omer of manna. For each member of your household, one omer, which amounts to a tenth of an ephah. So if you had a family of 10, then you would collect and gather every day an ephah of flour, and that would be it. That would be what you would live off of with some, some meat. Initially, they're provided quail, right? So they, they're provided that as their sustenance to live off of. Here we see one angel, the angel of the Lord, and Gideon, doesn't talk about anyone else gathering together, and he's providing food for 10. He's got enough cakes here that would make about 50 pounds of cake, in addition to a young goat and the broth that that young goat is cooked in. He brings all of that back to the angel of the Lord, and he presents it to him. This is an offering 
This is a gift. In fact, he uses that language in verse, nine, uh, verse 18. Stay, please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present. That's the same language you find in the sacrificial offerings um, of the Levitical law. Right? They, he is to bring an offering to God. And after presenting it, fire consumes it and the angel vanishes and Gideon, it says, is terrified. And rightly so. Right? Ralph, Del Ralph Davis says this, we Western Christians do not understand Gideon's agony. Such talk is strange to us. We long to reach our warm hand through the print of our Bible page, pat Gideon's shoulder and soothe him with, don't worry, brother Gideon. God's not really scary like that. If only you had a New Testament. And then he goes on to say, there is nothing amazing about grace as long as there is nothing fearful about holiness. Coming face to face with a holy God was always a terrifying experience for the very people that that God was being gracious to. So he has to reassure them. And rather than dying for seeing the Lord face to face, Gideon has shown favor. And he's given peace. In Genesis uh, chapter 32, verse 30, we read this. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And he's experienced this, and he's, he's not been destroyed. He's been saved. He's been delivered. Exodus chapter 33 Verses 17 through 20, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing I have spoken to, uh, that I have spoken to you, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And we'll see again in Judges 13, verses 21 through 22. And the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that the angel, that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. This is a common response to God revealing himself in his holiness and in his glory and calling the people of, or calling up, raising up a judge. And so instead of dying, Gideon finds favor and he receives peace. And so what is his response in verse 24? Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. So Gideon has responded to the Lord's call with gratitude and devotion, now building an altar to commemorate this location where God has raised him up and called him. And his offering was truly sacrificial. Remember where he found all of that wheat. Remember what it took to get that 50 pounds worth of flour to make these unleavened cakes. This was a sacrificial offering that he brings to the angel of the Lord. 
and it is to a young goat, as we've said. The call and response of Gideon is, is right in line with Moses and many other servants of the Lord that the Lord raised up. And it should stir up in all of us a renewed sense of devotion, of gratitude, and of joy in our salvation. John Piper says the true worship is a valuing or a treasuring of God above all things. Again, it, it starts with that reminder right, that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That is our hope. And so the Midianite oppression presents a picture of our depravity. Gideon's call shows us the grace of God who remains faithful to a rebellious people. And Gideon's offering reveals the grateful heart of a person who's been converted, called, and given a divine mission. And it parallels all of us, our lives. Here's a spoiler alert. Gideon successfully saves Israel. God uses him, raises him up, and he saves Israel and brings rest. But he's inadequate to save sinners. Right? That would come after more than 1,200 years through the shed blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Right? And so our gratitude for what Christ has done for us should overflow in a response much like Gideon's, where we cannot give enough because he's worthy to receive so much more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.